The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. Let me start by telling you that, that a few weekends ago, I was with my family at a beach up in Canada, a beach called Crescent Beach. And it's one of these, these types of places that when the tide goes out, it reveals, I mean, hundreds of yards of tidal flats where there are, are tide pools and sandbars and really just uh, tons of things for kids and uh, really adults of all ages uh, to enjoy. And so one of the things that my six-year-old immediately wanted to do was make a sandcastle. Okay, my guess is that there's a lot of us in this room that do this. Maybe it was even one of the things that you shared about your favorite thing to do at the beach, where you take some sand, put it in a bucket, plop it down, and you get, you know, these towers that kind of work. Okay, you know, they're not perfect, but they work. They, you get the general idea. Well, as, as the tide was beginning to come back in, uh, my six-year-old and I, Carson, were out there throwing these, these things down. And at first, Carson's being really, really deliberate in wanting to, to get, this, get this right, you know? But as he sees the tide come in, what was once very deliberate movement starts to be a little bit quicker movements. And as the tide continues to come in, there's, there's kind of a sense of, well, I guess, uh, I guess it's time to be done. And then, of course, we just kind of stood there and watched as, as the tide began to encroach more and more on the tower to see exactly how long it would last. And it was about 10 minutes until the tide uh, from the time it reached until it, it really ate up our sandcastle. Now, it's amazing to me how much energy Carson, and I think a lot of six-year-olds, both boys and girls, for what it's worth, had to just, how, how much energy they have to just go and play, to go and build something. And it was also interesting to notice how quickly he abandoned the project when he saw that it wasn't going to last. And perhaps what makes it interesting is how much I actually see that very same pattern in myself. Well, if you were with us last week, uh, we took some time out to pray for our neighborhood, for our city, for our country, really for the world. And tonight we want to uh, continue a series that we started a few weeks before that where we are engaging the questions that God asks of God's people in Scripture during this season, when I'm particularly aware that those of you who are seniors get many, many questions, but really all of us get those questions about what are you going to do with your summer? What are you going to do when you graduate? And so we're engaging these questions that God asks for the purposes of maybe helping us interact with, uh, with the questions that our culture asks. Um, so we're going to continue that series Tonight, and tonight we come to a passage that some theologians have called the theological apex of the Old Testament. So because of that, it seems to me that we should, once again, just stop and pray before we get started uh, with what we're going to cover tonight. God, would you illuminate your word for us? Would you be our teacher? Would you make yourselves, would you make yourself a little bit more real to us as we come to your word tonight? God, earnestly, we ask that you would teach us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, tonight we're going to uh, be looking at an interesting interaction between 
a guy named King David. Many of you in this room are probably familiar with the character of David in the Bible. Uh, his friend, the prophet Nathan, and of course, uh, their relationship with the Lord. Now, as we come to another Old Testament story tonight, let me give you a few contextual notes about what's going on here, okay? You gotta picture, you gotta know that, that what we come to tonight is really the high point in Israel's history. If Israel was ever truly great, it was at the, the, the time of the story that we're gonna read tonight. Even if you were to go to Israel today and to ask a, a, a faithful Jew about what was the high point in Israel's history, they would say this period right here where the kingdom was unified and, and the, the people Israel under the direction of King David have, have taken what was once a Canaanite city, we now know it as Jerusalem, and made it for their own, the city of David. So this is a, this is a big, big moment in the Old Testament. Uh, so we're gonna look tonight at 2 Samuel 7. And I just, as, as I read this, I invite you to, to, to picture the, the, the interaction, particularly between Nathan and, and King David. What would be the expressions that you would see on their face? How do you think they're feeling? What do you think's going through their head? as I uh, read these words. Again, this is from 2 Samuel uh, 7. I'm gonna start the first verse. It says this. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him, he, the king, said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, Go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? All right, let's, let's stop there. Uh, you are all here on Cinco de Mayo, and so you're gonna get your money's worth tonight. We're gonna do a bit of an in-depth Bible study. Okay, are you ready? Couple of couple of uh, of things that that could be a little bit confusing, but that uh, that I, I want us to to dive into a little bit. Okay, first, there's the question. We're doing a series on the questions that God asked. There's the question: Who will build my house? Okay, and in so right here, we're introduced to the idea of of a house being a temple or the permanent residence of God. Well, that connects very directly to this thing, the ark. Now, I'll be honest that when I think of the ark, okay, I usually, the first thing I usually think of is Indiana Jones, right? And you think about, you think about Indy and that sweet hat. And if you're thinking about Raiders of the Lost Ark, you're actually thinking about the ark in terms of, of like Nazis and World War II and stuff like that. All right. That's what we like to call, I, I don't know, historical fiction, maybe. But bottom line is there's, there's a lot more to the ark than Indiana Jones. It was believed that this ark, okay, and here's a, here's a rendering of, of what it would look like based on the descriptions of the ark um, in other places of the Bible, that the ark symbolized the very presence of God. And to the degree that David had realized these military victories that allowed him to build this palace and to take over Jerusalem, David very much believed that it was because of the presence of the ark, or rather the presence of the Lord that was symbolized by the ark, that they were able to have these, these victories. So 
as they're wrestling, as, as David and Nathan are talking and David is saying, here I am in this house of cedar while the Lord is out in a tent. Perhaps you caught that he's wrestling with something that just doesn't seem quite right. Uh, some of you know that, that I am a golfer. And I don't know if I love golf or if I'm just addicted to it because there's times that I actually think I hate it. It can make me so miserable. But a few weeks ago, I got to go to this place uh, down in California called Pebble Beach, which it's, it's, for a golfer, it is like, it, it's, it's, a, it's a pilgrimage, really. Okay, if you're into, if you're into theater, uh, going to Broadway in New York and experiencing some of the theaters there and the shows there would, would, is, is kind of a, a big deal. Anybody who's into theater has to go to Broadway. If you're into, say, rock climbing, you've got to go to Yosemite. You've got to go and experience El Capitan and Half Dome, okay? I would say that for a golfer, I know you're like, wow, a golfer, way to go, church, okay? <laughs> um, Pebble Beach is a similar type of deal. One of those places where you can't, you know, I, I kept the whole time I was there, I was going, I can't believe I'm here. This is amazing. And yet there were times when I was at Pebble Beach when everything seemed to be going just right for me, except of course my golf game, that, that I was aware of really a type of injustice. The fact that here I am at Pebble Beach while there are people that are starving. Here I am at, at Pebble Beach when there is just so much injustice in the world, when there is so much that just doesn't seem right, and yet everything seems to be going my way, except my golf game, okay? I believe that David is wrestling with a similar type of thing. Here I am, and everything seems to be going my way. I'm right where I want to be, and yet something ain't right. The Lord is out in a tent while I dwell in a house of cedar. Now, this might seem like a minor detail, but I want to point it out. This reference to cedar is to somebody, to the original hearers, to the ancient hearers and readers of these texts, when they would have seen that word cedar, that would have immediately got them thinking about the eternal. You see, the cedars of Lebanon are, are this, this enormous, gigantic tree that, that you would see throughout the Middle East, throughout the Levant. And in fact, we have one here on campus at the University of Washington, kind of in the northwest corner of the quad. And, and so this cedar, not only is it a magnificent tree that seems to grow forever as it's in the ground, it is also a material to build with that also seems to last forever. So as, as David says, here I am dwelling in a house of cedar, he's, he's alerting readers that what we are talking about is something that transcends more than just a mere moment. There's the tree that, that we see right near the art building on campus. And I bring it up and, and even project it so that it might be a reminder to you of this talk and a reminder as you see it or as you walk past it that that. God is faithful and that God is present and that God is eternal for that's what it meant for the ancient hearers of this text. So as we finish this first part, perhaps you caught that there's a little bit of tension. Here we are in this beautiful house of cedar 
while the presence of the Lord is out in a tent. And then there's this question, are you the one to build my house? Let's continue. Verse six. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. This is the Lord talking. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from the tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and cut off all your enemies before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning, and and have done since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. So first there's the question, are you the one to build my house? Okay, it's kind of a cliffhanger. And then he says, but wait, have I ever asked that of anyone? And then he does the big flip, right? No, you're not gonna build my house. I'm gonna build yours. He introduces the idea, kind of throws it out there. David seems pretty willing to do it. And then he says, I will build your house. Let's talk a little bit more about David here. Okay, David, as, as was noted here, was a lowly shepherd boy. When the, 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 the prophet Samson came, he was overlooked by his, uh, by his dad and, and, and kind of passed up. So it's, he's kind of a classic rags to riches story. And then, of course, he becomes this mighty warrior and kind of the ideal king of Israel. And part of what made him ideal, he was described as a man after God's own heart. And he was aware that even as he made this rise from being the youngest of his family, to being the king of Israel, which shouldn't happen, that it was because of the work of God. It was because of God's presence that made that all happen. And so now it seems that David is eager per his thing. It doesn't seem right that I'm living in this house while the the presence of the Lord is out in a tent. And yet there is the, the Lord through the prophet Nathan saying, are you the one to build my house? David seems to be ready to say, yes, I will. But he's like, oh, no, no, no. You're not going to build the house. I'm going to build your house. I'm going to make it great. In some ways, when I was reading this, it was almost as if David and the Lord were fighting over who was going to pick up the, the, the tab at dinner. No, 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 I'll take care of it. No, 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 let me take care of it. No, no, honestly, I'll take care of it. Oh, okay, okay, you can take care of it. You need to catch this here. Okay, you need to catch this that what's happening is that God is making a covenant, a promise to David that says, I will continue to be with you and to be with you always. I am not only gonna bless you in your lifetime in building your house, I am gonna bless you and your descendants in perpetuity forever. Now this is significant because though David is a man after God's own heart, he fails. Though David isn't the one to build the temple, his sons 
will build a temple and it will be magnificent and that temple will crumble. And yet God remains faithful. It's a very important promise that we see in scripture of God's promise to be present permanently with his people. Let's skip down to verse 25 in chapter seven. And it says this. Now, this is David speaking. He says, and now Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promise so that your name will be great forever. Okay, David has turned the emphasis from being on him to being on the Lord, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy and you have promised these things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken and with your blessings, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Okay, honestly, in English, we can't connect to how wonderfully poetic this passage is. Now, it makes sense, right, that the guy who wrote pretty much all of the Psalms would be really prophetic. But here's what, I, here's what I want you to get. In this interaction between the Lord and Nathan and David and the Lord, is that it would be on par with, you know, maybe, maybe you're one of these people that you have, you have a group of friends that are so close that you could text them, say, three to five emojis, and they could explain to somebody with about 500 words exactly how you're feeling and what you're doing in that given moment, okay? That's, in some ways, what's in play right here in this, these wonderfully poetic words of, of the, Nathan, the, the prophecy the Lord had given to Nathan and then in David's response to the Lord is much like language that is that efficient as to communicate in intimacy. It's, they know each other so well that they can, they can speak the way they do. It's a language of closeness, a language of intimacy, a language of presence. The promise is that I will be present with you forever. So what do we do with this, this question that was thrown out there? Are you the one to build my house in light of a series that we're doing on the questions that we get, to the, get from the culture and how the Bible might guide us in responding to those questions, to those questions of what are we going to do with our life? What is our purpose? What is God's purpose? What is God's plan? Three things that come out of this for me that I want to end with. The first is this, be aware. Be aware of God's permanent presence. The promise of this text is that God will remain faithful to David forever. And of course, in that faithfulness, one of the great manifestations of this promise is rest. The sense of stopping. I think the Lord's gift to David is not letting him build this house after he had been out on the military field and instead saying, stop, 
Don't be busy, just be. When I think about what is the opposite of rest in our culture, the first word that comes to mind is anxiety. And according to a a study center, a, a bit of a think tank called the Anxiety and Depression Center of America, they say that more than 42 million Americans deal with some sort of this type of anti-rest or anxiety. We experience this a lot, I believe, in our community, don't we? Feelings of being anxious, perpetually worried, overwhelmed, wondering if we're somehow getting life right. Well, I want to avoid suggesting that in order to be a successful Christian, then you need to never have anxiety. No, I don't want us to be a culture that has to fake it when we're anxious. As much as what I think that the promise of this text reminds us of is the heart and a character of God that invites us away from such anxiety that desires you to experience something different, that desires to give you rest. That may not be something that you're able to realize right now, but as you wrestle with these questions and experience the anxiety, know that the heart and the character of God as it was to King David is also true for you. That the promise of a perpetually present and forever God is an invitation to rest. Be aware of God's presence and God's invitation to you. Second, be humble. Now, humility is not thinking lowly of yourself. Humility is thinking accurately of yourself. For me, one of the striking aspects of this text is that David has a very vibrant, a very real relationship with Yahweh, the Lord. He believes, because of the presence of the ark, that God has delivered him, not only him, but an entire group of people, Israel, from their enemies and into victory. And there is this sense that David knows he is not the one that brought about this victory. He knows himself to be a man in need. David knows his own limitations and and as such wants God's presence to be known among the people. In the chapter that precedes the one that that we're reading, it's all about David and his desire for the name of God, for God's presence to be revered. David seems to know himself to be a man in need. He knows who he is in his limitations, and in what he's been called to. And above all, he knows who God is. Earlier, Susie read from Psalm 86. And it was both a, a, that, that Psalm is a wonderful confession of both of who David understands himself to be as a man in need and who he understands God to be as almighty, as the God of the universe. I want to encourage you as you develop this sense of humility to use the Psalms as a guide. We're so grateful that David in his intimate language with the Lord, actually, we were able to preserve some of things and they, some of these words, some of these things, and and they coach us in what humility at least sounds like. As you develop this sense of humility, I encourage you to look at the Psalms as a type of guide. Finally, be patient. 
Be aware, be humble, be patient. Did you catch that just because the Lord asked a question, it was not marching orders? Okay, I often think that if the moment I hear a question, you know, if I didn't, if my boss is saying, hey, did you get me that TPS report and I haven't turned it in, that that implies it's time for me to go and do something and get that in. Well, they never really asked that. And the same thing is present here, that sometimes in our busyness, our wanting to go and do something, we want to do it right away. And often if we hear or we're sensing a sense of call, a sense of, of the Lord saying, do this, we want to get after it right away. We don't necessarily want to rest or wait. Uh, I want to share with you about a time where I went through what felt like a 14-month job interview. Uh, about seven years ago now, uh, the, the, the guy who was in this job before me uh, was, was transitioning and, and he, as he was leaving, uh, leadership here at the church asked Janie and I to step in as interim. And that was an easy thing to do because we had felt like, hey, we are, we are called to this. We love this neighborhood. We love this ministry. We are eager uh, to, to step in and, and do this. This feels right. And in fact, there was a sense of, you know, we don't really have to do this whole interim thing. Um, if you want to just kind of give us the job and turn us loose, that would be just fine. Well, that wasn't the process. And over the next 14 months, there were, you know, dozens upon dozens of people that were, that were considered uh, to be in this job. And yet, we were still commissioned with needing to keep doing what we were doing, to keep going, even though we might not be the ones that would, be, that would continue to uh, have the leadership of, of this place. Well... As this progressed in that 14 months, um, and I wasn't sure if I was going to have a, a job, my, my wife was pregnant with our first son, and I wasn't sure if I was going to have a job when he was born. And over that 14 months of being patient, what I learned, albeit slowly, was how to trust God with my career was how to discover that God was present even when I didn't necessarily feel it. That in my anxiety around what will I do if I don't have a job, God was, was still present. And I can genuinely say that, that as we came to the end of that 14 months, though, uh, though we were offered the job to stick around, that there was this sense of being okay with whatever the outcome was. This sense of God is present whether I'm here or not. God will provide for me whether it is here or not. God's presence is permanent. So be aware, be active, be, or be aware, be humble, be patient, and I believe that when we do that, we live into our purpose to make known the permanent 
presence of a loving and faithful God. Before we ever do anything, before we build anything, we simply know and make known the presence of a loving God that will not abandon us. Are you the one to build my house? God was present to David. God was present to David's descendants who built a temple and it was destroyed. Well, through David, through David's house emerged this one Jesus who God was faithful and present to. And on this side of the cross, even as Jesus became that temple, on this side of the cross through the Holy Spirit, you have become that temple. Pinch yourself really quick. That's the presence of God. You are the temple of God. God's promise to David is that I will build the house. I will bless your house. And through Jesus, his death on the cross, in his giving the spirit, you have become that temple. The permanent presence of God is in each of you. It's no sandcastle. It's there for good. So be aware of that presence that's in you and make it known to the entire world. That's your purpose. God, thank you that you have built us up. Before we are ever able to build you up, you have built us up. And so help us as we seek to make your presence, your loving and gracious presence known. And just would you help us be aware of the truth and the reality of your love and your grace in our life. For you are good and you have blessed us. And we thank you in Jesus' name.